Chanel Salon and Grocery Store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Groceries through Instacart delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. Good evening, everyone. The, um, the title of this theme, um, Living Proverbs, um, you might notice it has an ambiguity um, about the title. There are two ways you could interpret the title. And uh, that, w- that was deliberate because I want us to look at it from two perspectives. Um, the proverbs themselves are, are lively, are living, they're exciting. So the proverbs are living in that sense. But of course you could make the living the, the verb to say, how do we live the Proverbs? We have to live what they say. What I'd like to try and do over the course of these um, five studies this week is have a sense of both these, these aspects. What I'd like to do today is, is pick up on the theme of wisdom, more or less in general, and in particular look at the book of Proverbs as a whole to get something of its structure, something of its flavor. And um, what we're then going to do in future um, talks is, is, ho- uh, is, is um, I can't remember what the word is, hone in? Does that, yeah, yeah, it sounded wrong. <laughs> is, is hone in on, on particular, uh, particular topics. I think you'll agree with me that the nature of Scripture is that it's life-based. Somebody asked me once, why do I read the Scriptures? And... and the, the, the answer just came out of me. I read the scriptures because it shows me the lives of people who have pleased God. And, and after I said it, I thought, hmm, that's a good answer. And, and it is a good answer. It shows us the lives of real people. It gives us something to model ourselves on. And it's so much more powerful than abstractions, whether they're laws or statements of belief. Those are abstractions. When we actually see how somebody lives his life, when we see Abraham in a time of great stress, maybe even making the wrong decision of of lying about who Sarah was. Or we see him in another time, and we see the faith just pouring out of him and and the overwhelming things that he was able to achieve for God. And and those affect us. They, They change us. They change the way that we live our lives. And so we're presented in Scripture with Paul, for example, as a person. And we see his strengths we see his weaknesses and we see the things that challenge him. We look at Jonah and we see him as a person and we see the effect of a nationalistic outlook, how that affects the things that he does and how God calls him to overcome that. We see Jacob as a real person. We see the family tension that is taking place in in, in that family, whether it's with his brother or between his wives or between his sons, with his in-laws. It just goes on and on and on. And and we feel for the man. And we know what it's like. and, And it shows us a lot about ourselves. And we see Jesus as a person. Somebody who was tempted like we are somebody with whom we are to develop a relationship. And so, Scripture gives us this tremendous life orientation. It shows us real people in order for us to learn lessons. So what we then find in Proverbs is is the sort of essence of that life. 
as if you've distilled it. And, and you know when you get peppermint essence or some other essence, it, sometimes it's very strong and it, it needs to be diluted. It needs to be exercised a bit to be able to, to, be able to te- uh, taste it properly, to be able to understand the point that's coming across. So we get in Proverbs this distillation of life. Interestingly, the word proverb is essentially the same word as parable. And so when, when Jesus gives his parables, they're really proverbs. They're, they're, they're more extended proverbs than a lot of the ones that are given here in the book of Proverbs. But it's the same idea. He's giving us a story. He's giving us a, a picture for us to learn um, about life. And of course, the, the, there are problems when you start to distill something that you may, may have to make generalizations. And the generalizations then lead to things which on the surface seem a little contradictory. Um, Just in in everyday speech, you know the proverb about uh, many hands make light work, and and that's a useful proverb, and too many cooks spoil the broth is another useful proverb. And so I often, just for fun, talk about many hands spoil the broth. Um, But you, you get the idea. The one of them is saying you want lots of people, and the other one is saying you don't want lots of people. But, but they, they, ha- they have appropriateness in, in different um, places. We see the same in Proverbs. Look at chapter 26 and verse, um, verses 4 and 5. Proverbs 26 verse 4 is very clear. Do not answer a fool according to his folly or you'll be like him yourself. Very clear advice. Look at 26 verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. Well, should you answer a fool according to his folly or not? Well, yes or no, depending on the circumstance. And what the proverb gives are various consequences of the different kinds of actions. There's a danger if you answer him, because you might be you might become like him but there's a danger if you don't answer him because then he'll think uh, he'll he'll just think that he's okay and that he's doing fine he'll he'll be wise in his own eyes and so we get sometimes these apparent contradictions and of course Solomon who pulled many of these proverbs together knows that they're contradictory and the Holy Spirit knows that they're contradictory because there's many aspects in which life is contradictory do we go this way or this way well sometimes the answer isn't clear and sometimes we have to think hard about it and there are a number of choices and, and, and we, um, we need to explore those choices I think the fundamental message that the book of Proverbs is going to try to get over to us is that the way we live and the things that we do have consequences. Um, I'd like to uh, uh, read a story here that I um, took off the internet back in 1996. Um, and some of you may have come across this story, but um, it's, it's interesting nonetheless. Remember, it's the things we do have consequences. The Arizona Highway Patrol came upon a pile of smoldering metal embedded into the side of a cliff rising above the road at the apex of a curve. The wreckage resembled the site of an airplane crash, but it was a car. The type of car was unidentifiable at the scene. The lab finally figured out what it was and what had happened. It seems that a guy had somehow got hold of a JATO unit, jet-assisted takeoff, actually a solid-fuel rocket, that is used to give heavy military transport planes an extra push for taking off from short airfields. 
He had driven his Chevy Impala. And so I'm trying not to smile. It's a sad story, but... <laughs> he had driven his Chevy Impala out into the desert, found a long, straight stretch of road. Then he attached the Jato unit to his car, jumped in, got, off, got up some speed, and fired off the Jato. The facts, as best as could be determined, are that the operator of the 1967 Impala hit Jato ignition at a distance of approximately three miles from the crash site. This was established by the proximate scorched and melted asphalt in that location. The Jato, if operating properly, would have reached maximum thrust within five seconds, causing the Chevy to reach speeds well in excess of 350 miles per hour. I guess that's 500 kilometers per hour, something like that and continuing at full power for an additional 20 to 25 seconds. The driver, soon to be pilot, most likely would have experienced G-forces usually reserved for dogfighting F-14 jocks under full afterburners, basically causing him to become insignificant for the remainder of the event. However, the automobile remained on the straight highway for about two and a half miles, that's 15 to 20 seconds, before the driver applied and completely melted the brakes, blowing the tires and leaving thick rubber marks on the road surface, then becoming airborne for an additional one and a half miles and impacting the cliff face at a height of 125 feet, leaving a blackened crater three feet deep in the rock. Most of the driver's remains were not recoverable, however small fragments of bone, teeth and hair were extracted from the crater and fingernail and bone shards were removed from a piece of debris believed to be a portion of the steering wheel. So, actions have consequences, and this is one of the things that Proverbs is trying to get across to us in our everyday life. Let's look at some examples just quickly. We'll pick one out from Proverbs 24 and verse 30. This is the kind of thing that, that we're presented here to see the things that you do will have an effect in, the li in, in your life. Verse 30 of 24. I went past the field of the sluggard, past the vineyard of the man who lacks judgment. Thorns had come up everywhere, the ground was covered with weeds, and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit, and scarcity like an armed man. So this, this sluggard, he's, he, he might be lying there in his bed and saying, I don't know where all these weeds came from. don't know what to do about it. And, and the reason is he's a sluggard. He's just sitting there not doing anything. This whole idea of our deeds having consequences, David, of course, is a very commonly quoted example. Um, in the in the short term, some of the deeds that he did, say, with, with, with Bathsheba, led immediately to consequences that, that he brought about, the, the deceit, the murder of Uriah, but the long-term consequences were things that he had no control over. And, and that led to deaths within his family, the rebellion of Absalom, the, um, the turning against him of Ahithophel, uh, she being um, Bathsheba's grandfather. All of these come about... Um, outside of his control and I think this is something that is from God the consequences are there to teach us lessons uh, come back a little bit if you were to Proverbs 19 and verse 19 
hot-tempered man must pay the penalty. If you rescue him, you'll have to do it again. What's he saying? He's saying, how will the hot-tempered man learn not to be hot-tempered if you go in and smooth over all the effects of his hot temper? If he blows up about something and you go in and you say, oh, oh don't worry about him. He, he, you know, give him a few minutes and he'll settle down. Then he'll stay hot-tempered all his life. And the proverb says, a hot-tempered man must pay the penalty. If you rescue him, you'll have to do it again. There's an an idea in some of the um, American um, parenting books, which is very powerful, of describing some style of parenting as helicopter parents. These are the parents who, and and I'm sure you you know them, who who hover over their children all the time, like, like a helicopter. And as soon as the child does something which is at all um, going to lead to a bad circumstance, the, the, the parent dives in and tries to fix the situation. And so the child grows up not knowing that the things that they do have consequences. And, and, and they don't understand that until, of course, they become teenagers and they don't want the parents hovering around and suddenly they're doing things and they have all sorts of consequences and this is completely new to the child. And so as parents, I think we're we're instructed to allow our children to experience the consequences of their actions so that they understand this is the fundamental teaching that we get here in Proverbs. And I think this is a a, a core to the the question, why does God let bad things happen? It's exactly the same reason. If God stepped in the minute somebody was... Uh, bringing about a bad circumstance and made sure the bad circumstance didn't come, come forward, how would we know what sin was? How would we know what it was to rebel against God if it never turned out bad? David could just go off and take a hundred Bathshebas and there would be no consequences. And I think this is fundamentally why Jesus died. It was to demonstrate the sin of sinful man. It was to say, you know what, the sin that you and I share and that people out there share, that sin, when confronted with the most lovely man that has ever lived, when confronted with the very righteousness of God, comes in and destroys it. That's what sin is like. And God shows us the consequence of that sin that is within all of us. So that means Proverbs is trying, in in getting this lesson across, is trying to be a fundamentally practical book. It's a major method of the culture at that time. And I'd like us to look outside of the book of of Proverbs to see some examples of this. And we'll start in 1 Kings chapter 4. One Kings chapter four and verse twenty nine. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight, and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the East, and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezrahite, wiser than Heman, Kalkal, and Dada, the sons of Mahal, and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. 
He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptile and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who heard of his wisdom. And so you have this notion of this very wise man and there's lots of wise men around being mentioned and Solomon exceeds them all. So this idea of having individuals who are very wise that people would go to consult, this was part of the culture at that time and Solomon now is wiser than them all. It's reminiscent almost of Daniel there in Babylon. The king of Babylon had many advisors but when he was really stuck he would come to Daniel to find out what was going on. The proverbs that we have here are... um, Some of them are similar to various anecdotes that arise in other countries, but I think the fundamental distinguishing feature of of the the book of Proverbs is that it claims, and and obviously we believe, is to be from God. Let me just read verse 7 of chapter 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. So all of the, the, the... This is a distinguishing feature that we get from this particular collection of Proverbs. It leads us into the fear of the Lord. Now these kinds of Proverbs that we get throughout this book of Proverbs aren't limited just to here. I'd like us to glance at um, uh, three of them outside of the book. And we'll start with Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 44. And again, on some of these, feel free just to listen if you like, because I'll run through them fairly quickly. Everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb about you, like mother, like daughter. You're a true daughter of your mother who despised her husband and her children. Like mother, like daughter. Well, the, the common one that we have nowadays is like father, like son, but it's the same idea. Here it is, a proverb There's a certain family resemblance is what the proverb is telling us and Ezekiel is saying this is a well-known proverb. Now look at how it works in the context of of Jerusalem. Let's have a look at another one. This one from 1 Samuel chapter 24 And, and all I'm doing here is just giving you a sense that Proverbs aren't limited simply to the book of Proverbs but we find them um, occurring elsewhere in scripture. Proverbs 24 and verse 13. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. And and here David is using this, this, this proverb, this picture, this parable, if you like, to say, look, I understand that it's evildoers who give rise to evil deeds, Therefore, I will not do an evil deed, otherwise that classifies me as an evildoer. It's rather like James talking about, can the same spring bring forth fresh water and salt water? So it's a picture, it's a parable, it's a proverb that can be used to guide everyday life. I think one of my favourite, and again, I'm sure all of these are familiar to us, 1 Kings chapter 20. Um, This is the um, ancient version of not counting one's chicken before they're hatched. And I love the way it, it comes off. Um, the, uh, <coughs> the king of um, Aram is, is uh, 
talking to Ahab and he says I, I'm going to um, I'm going to wipe wipe the floor with you essentially in verse 10 and in verse 11 of 1 Kings 20 um, the, the one good thing Ahab seems to have said in his life is the king of Israel answered tell him one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off and I love that picture just the idea of you know, you're only putting your armor on now is not the time to tell the tales wait till you come back from the battle and you're taking your armor off that's the time that you can tell your stories so all of these are, are very short, memorable, pithy little phrases that, that, that capture some essential truth whether it is like mother, like daughter or this slightly longer one who, um, one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off as I say that's like not counting your chickens before they hatched proverb contains some um, longer perhaps even more eloquent sayings and some of them we've nowadays in our modern society reduced to the essence uh, look at Proverbs 16 <coughs> Proverbs 16 and verse 18 and 19 this clearly is, is one thing that is being described here <coughs> Proverbs 16 verse 18 pride goes before destruction a haughty spirit before a fall better to be lowly in spirit and among the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud and so these two proverbs or, or these two parts of the proverb clearly go together and nowadays of course we shorten it just pride goes before a fall but nonetheless this, the story is here there's something more to, to chew on something more to meditate on because it's not it, it gives you an idea of pride and haughty spirit compared with being lowly in spirit the idea of the, the, the proud those that go out and, and divide plunder among themselves there's a lot to think about a lot to let your mind rest on as you start applying this in, into your daily life so am I, am I being proud in this particular situation if so is that leading to destruction is it coming to fall and it's better to be lowly in spirit something, something to chew on there something to meditate so Proverbs contains a lot of these longer, sort of more eloquent sayings. And I think also it gives many experiences that are, are outside what the common man might realize. That there are times about, it talks about going before kings. And it gives advice as to how to go before kings. And there's also very much a, a kind of young man perspective about this. Uh, there's a lot of descriptions about what sort of wife would be appropriate. And so all of these kinds of things make it come together and make it seem as if Proverbs may have been some kind of life textbook intended initially for princes or nobles. And uh, one wonders at least whether the introduction was actually literally given by David to be passed on to Solomon, talking about my son in um, uh, the, the stress on the son in Proverbs 1 verse 1 and in verse 8 listen my son to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching there will be a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck I wonder whether there this proverb of Solomon that belongs to Solomon might have been one that had even been given by his father rather than um, ones that uh, were, were, were given by Solomon himself so what we've done there is just given a little bit of a, a, a flavor 
um, of, of the book. Let's talk for a few minutes about the structure of the book itself. And, and the book is clearly divided into, into different sorts of things. Um, first of all, given that most of these proverbs come from Solomon, um, and Solomon was living and reigning around 900 years before Christ, we're talking about material that was written 3,000 years ago. And I think it's something that we often forget when we think about the, the um, scriptures. Scriptures seem so, so modern somehow, so relevant for today, that, that it's almost as if they were, they were written just 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And we're talking about things that were written 3,000 years ago. So if ever anybody says to you that the, the nature, that, that human beings have progressed dramatically, I was talking to somebody recently who had a sense that, that um, civilization has been such and the civilizing influence has been such that, that we now know and, and are, are much more um, capable as human beings that, than human beings in past time. We have much better moral judgment and, and things like that. Don't, don't believe it at all. You look in Proverbs and you see things that are every bit relevant today as they were 3,000 years ago. The men and women who gathered together to learn about the principles of God 3,000 years ago could be the same as the men and the women that are gathered here today. We're the same kinds of people. So, chapter um, Proverbs, starting from about um, Prover uh, chapter 1, verse 8, through to chapter 9, Many of these proverbs at this point could either have been from Solomon or may have been given for Solomon. They seem to be slightly different from the ones that, that come later, have a different kind of, of sense. And I wonder, perhaps, are these proverbs that, that David had given to his son to, to set him up? But certainly by the time we come to chapter 10, we get the Proverbs of Solomon itself. And this is the bulk of, of, of the book of Proverbs. We get these very short Proverbs. Keep your finger in chapter 10 and jump across to um, chapter 22, halfway through chapter 22, um, verse 16. And that seems to be the last of this section of Proverbs. So chapters 10, 11, 12, and so on, up to 20, 21, 22, halfway through 22, are all the Proverbs of Solomon. And if you count them, there's um, nearly 400 here, 375 Proverbs of Solomon. There's actually a little bit of extra structure here. If you look at the first um, Proverbs, go back to um, the early ones. Um, let's, let's pick up just at the end of chapter 10, for example. Um, the lips of the righteous, this is the last one in chapter 10. The lips of the righteous know what is fitting, but the mouth of the wicked only what is perverse. Let's run into chapter 11. The Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are his desire. Look around, and you'll see the bulk of the Proverbs here are but Proverbs. That is, it's one phrase, but another phrase. Now, there's, a, a, there's quite a big change takes place as we move from chapter 15 to chapter 16. It's not exactly there. It's the last verse of, of chapter 15. So, um, end of chapter 15, let's pick a couple of them. Um, you'll see 27, a greedy man brings trouble to his family, but he who hates bribes will live. A but, the heart of the righteous, 28, um, weighs its answers, but the mouth of the wicked gush evil. And as we come into chapter 16, you'll notice that there's actually very few 
but proverbs, and a lot of them start being and proverbs. Um, of course, the, the first one is, is against that, the first couple are against that. But you'll see that, that there's a, a principle now that, uh, let, let's glance at a couple of them. For example, um, verse 20 of chapter 16, whoever gives heed to instruction prospers and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. To the wise in heart, the wise in heart are called discerning, verse 21, and pleasant words promote instruction. And so, broadly speaking, and I'm not trying to make any deep point here, but broadly speaking, we start off with a whole bunch of comparisons. One thing compared with another, with the word but being used to compare two different situations. And then we gradually get more and more synonyms of saying, here's one thing and here's another way of looking at the same thing. And so it's quite interesting just to notice as you look at each, each proverb. Is it, is it a but proverb or is it an and proverb? So that takes us through to halfway through um, chapter 22 and the Proverbs of Solomon. From, the proverbs, from there on, we get various um, collections, um, sayings of the wise, and we'll come back to those in just a minute. So keep your fingers in 22 and jump across to 25. And you get a whole group more of Solomon's Proverbs. Now, the book tells us that these are Solomon's Proverbs, but not ones that Solomon himself arranged. The implication is he arranged all the others. He arranged the the Proverbs that came from chapter 10 through chapter 22. But now, from chapter 25 onwards, these are uh, Proverbs of Solomon that the men of Hezekiah have collected and arranged. And so, of course, who are the men of Hezekiah? We can't be sure of this, but perhaps Micah would be a plausible man of Hezekiah. Maybe Isaiah is another one. Um, So Hezekiah is about 200 years after Solomon. He's about 700 BC. And as we know, his whole purpose is to re-establish the worship originally instituted by, by David. And what he does is he and his men take a a whole group of proverbs that they know Solomon has has put together. After all, what were we reading earlier? That that Solomon had had thousands of proverbs. and We only have 300 or 400 of them in that that previous section. So there are many other proverbs of Solomon that that Hezekiah's men take and group together. And now we have them uh, organized from chapter 25 through chapter 29, uh, the end of chapter 29. So then, that doesn't um, exhaust this book. The rest of the Proverbs don't seem to be Solomon's at all. They seem to be other collected sayings. And so back in chapter uh, uh, 24, uh, I'm sorry, 22, verse 17, um, we, we get introduced the idea in verse 17, pay attention and listen to the sayings of the wise. Apply your heart to what I teach. So there's a whole group here of, of sayings of the wise. And if you, if you look in chapter 24 and verse 23, it says, these also are sayings of the wise. For example, to show partiality in judging is not good, and so on. So there's the sayings of the wise. And maybe these came from some of the other wise men, and that the um, collator, the spirit-guided collator of, of the book of Proverbs that we have, not only have the, the um, uh, Proverbs of Solomon, but have collected together these others that are particularly descriptive, particularly powerful. 
And then there's the final two chapters of the book, again from, uh, from completely different sources. Um, chapter 30 and verse 1, we find the um, sayings of Agur, son of Jacob, an oracle. And you can, as far as I have found, look in all the commentaries you can imagine and nobody has the faintest idea who Agur, son of Jacob, is. He seems to be this completely unknown to, to our modern um, situation. But nonetheless, he comes through with, with tremendously powerful um, proverbs. Uh, one of the beautiful ones uh, comes out in verse 7 of, of uh, Proverbs 30. Two things I ask of you, O Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonor the name of my God. And, and perhaps this is where Jesus gets the idea of, Give us today our daily bread. Just give us enough. Don't give us so much that we don't need to rely on you, Lord. And, and don't give us so little that we start dishonoring your name by going around and stealing. And then finally, chapter 31, the sayings of King Lemuel, an oracle his mother taught him. Now, Jewish tradition claims that Lemuel is Solomon, but I don't know any evidence beyond Jewish tradition that this may be the case. So perhaps Lemuel was just another name for Solomon, or perhaps it was actually a different king. But at any rate, through the work of the Spirit, we have this tremendous 31st chapter, um, which, which talks about, uh, first of all, how kings and rulers should conduct themselves, and then the beautiful um, poem about the wife of noble character. All of these are collected for our learning, and as to whether we should trust them, just remind yourself in, in Ecclesiastes of what um, uh, Solomon says there concerning these sorts of, of words. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. Their collected sayings are like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. One shepherd. So whether they come from uh, Lemuel, or whether they come from Agur, son of Jacob, or the wise, or from Solomon, or from David, they actually, Solomon tells us, are coming from God. It is one shepherd who's speaking through these, one author, and it's just like Scripture. Now, of course, there's this, there's this great conundrum about the book of Proverbs, that though it has all these themes running through it, such as the, the fool, or, or the wise, or, or the sluggard, and, and, and you know the various themes, I'm sure, that, that run through the book of Proverbs. Um, uh, and other themes are, for example, uh, integrity or duplicity, uh, how you're motivated, whether you show faithfulness, the theme of love, the theme of kindness. All these themes run through the book of Proverbs. But as I say, there's this huge conundrum that they're all jumbled up. 
I mean, you know this just by experience, that if you want to look at the proverbs about the sluggard, you dip in here and there and somewhere else, and, and, and you're all over the place. Couldn't the wise have had the common sense to group them? Well, obviously, as soon as you start asking that question, you, you end up realizing, well, maybe they weren't supposed to be grouped. You know, maybe, maybe the wise started to think about this and said, you know what, let's not group them. I mean, I'm sure perhaps you have a Bible like, um, like one we have at home, which does actually group them all together. And, and there is a value in being able to see the various themes all grouped together. But of course, we have the Proverbs as they are through the work of God's Spirit. And there must therefore be a good reason why, why they're not grouped. Why we don't get all the sluggard ones together. Why we don't get all the fool um, ones together. Um, and and if, it, if just thinking about it isn't sufficient, um, remind, remember what we just read there in Ecclesiastes. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. He set them in order, it says. That means we don't have them jumbled up. It's not as if uh, Solomon, when grouping them together, wrote out all the Proverbs and threw them up in the air and waited for them to come down and then picked them up randomly. What it's saying is that he took these various Proverbs and, 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 and he was moving them around and he said, you know what, I want to put this one next to that one. And I want to take this one and I want to put it next to that one. He set them in some sort of order. And, and I think one, one of the things that we're being asked to do by looking at them, by, by expecting there to be a notion of order here, is to be able to uh, get value from the things, that, the way that they have been put together. And so I'd like to suggest that one of the things we don't do enough of when we're looking at individual proverbs is look at the ones that it has been set next to. As I say, it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle that has been put together and each proverb has been put in the context of another proverb which enriches the first one. And suddenly your mind blows with the complexity of it because not only does this proverb get value from the one above it, but the one above it gets value from the one below it. it it's, it's like this tremendously complex interlocking jigsaw puzzle that Solomon um, has put together. Let's look at some examples of this. In chapter 12, um, for example, we'll, we'll, we'll take one. Chapter 12 and verse 15 says, The way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. Well, we can, we can think about that proverb just by itself. Oh yes, I know a foolish kind of person, and you can't tell him anything. He's convinced that what he's doing, it seems right. But then I know somebody else who has a lot of insight, and yet you can go up to that person, and you can say, have you thought about this other way? And he'll s step back and think, ah, that's interesting. And, and he'll be willing to take that into account, not immediately follow it necessarily, but, but he'll listen to it as advice and think about it. So that's what we can get from that proverb by itself. Now let's see if we can enrich that proverb by in looking at the next proverb and seeing if it feeds into it. Look at the next one. 
A fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. So again, we could look at this second proverb, this verse 16 of chapter 12, just by itself. Oh yes, if I see a fool, um, he quickly gets annoyed at once over anything. A prudent man, if you do something to insult him, he'll, he'll turn the other cheek. I mean, that's the idea. He, he will overlook the insult. But now put these two together and see what it's saying. It's saying that if you try to go and talk to a fool, not only will the, his own way always seem right to him, but he will be annoyed that you go and try and talk to him. And he will show his annoyance. And he will say, what are you talking to me about this for? I know what I'm doing and what I'm doing is right. He's showing his annoyance to you at once. Go to a wise man or a prudent man and talk to him. There is a sense in which you, if you go up to somebody and say, I think you're doing wrong here, you're on the verge of insulting them. Yeah, because there's a sense in which you're saying you may have done the wrong thing you may be wrong here and, and if it turns out that they're not then it's almost like an insult what does the prudent man do? he overlooks the insult and he goes down deeper into it and he listens to the advice that's contained within it and so suddenly by putting those two together you get something which is more than the sum of the parts if, if you're to be a wise man, it's not only the, the properly presented advice that you listen to, but it's the insult. You look for the advice that is uh, accorded within an insult, and you think, oh, if, if, if he said that to me or said that about me, then, yeah, that's interesting. That was a, a, a view of me that I'd never seen before. I'd never thought about it that way. And... and and not only do you not show the annoyance and overlook the insult, but you find the nugget of advice that's in there. And you take it and you grow by it. Well, let's look at another one. Chapter 28. So, let me emphasize again that the principle that we're going to use again and again when we come to Proverbs is we'll take a proverb and then we'll look at its neighboring proverbs and use those to enrich this particular proverb that we're looking at. So chapter 28 and verse 14. Blessed is the man who always fears the Lord, but he who hardens his heart falls into trouble. So as we take that proverb by itself, it's fairly straightforward. If you fear the Lord, you're blessed. If you harden your heart, you fall into trouble. There's not a whole lot more you can say about that proverb by itself. But let's start to look at the ones around it. Look at um, verse 13. He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Well, this is exactly talking about the concept on the one hand of fearing the Lord and on the other hand of hardening your heart. It's telling you what it means to fear the Lord and what it means to harden your heart. If you conceal your sin, you're hardening your heart. But if you confess your sin, it's because you fear the Lord. And so, in what way is the man who fears the Lord blessed because he confesses his sins, he renounces them, and he finds mercy. So that's one aspect in which he's blessed. 
What about the verse that comes after verse 14? Like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked man ruling over a helpless people. Hmm. Well, think about it. Verse 14, Blessed is the man who always fears the Lord, but he who hardens his heart falls into trouble. Like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked man ruling over a helpless people. Well, the the wicked man ruling over a helpless people is one who hardens his heart. And he's now saying he's acting like a roaring lion or a charging bear. And you suddenly get an idea of it's, it's... Perhaps our mind goes back to Pharaoh as one who hardens his heart. He becomes like this roaring lion, this charging bear, until he's confronted by God. Or he's confronted by another power, perhaps, that God brings into play. Or even he's confronted by the people that finally rebel. And indeed, the one who hardens his heart falls into trouble. So I think what what we're getting here is uh, examples where Solomon... Um, and, and others have deliberately just grouped the, the proverbs together. It's, it's almost like paint. Um, uh, I, I, I'm not an artist either, so I, I fear to talk about painting. But nonetheless, something that happens when you paint is you may choose to, to let something dry before you paint over it. Or you may have painted part of it and you deliberately start painting something else. And you're wanting a, a sort of blending between the bits of painting that you're doing. And you'll get something which is richer than either part just by itself. And I get a sense that a lot of the Proverbs are like this. Uh, we've got a couple more minutes, so I'd like to just pick some, exam- some more examples from chapter 17. Chapter 17. Let's start with verse 2. A wise servant will rule over a disgraceful son and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers so in a household you have a disgraceful son you have a wise servant and suddenly the wise servant becomes as valuable as one of the sons well let's get some extra richness on this proverb look at verse 1 better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife well, so maybe that's something about the disgraceful son. You've got this notion of a house full of feasting with strife. And perhaps it's better just to have a dry crust with peace and quiet. What about verse 3? The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. That is, how can you tell whether you've got a wise servant or a disgraceful son? The answer is, God knows. He is the one that will test the heart. He is the one that will act like that, that melting pot, if you like, to, to determine exactly um, uh, who, is, who is what. Verse 5, and we'll look at 5 and 6 together. He who mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. Whoever gloats over disaster will not go unpunished. Again, a, a fairly straightforward um, proverb about justice and compassion by itself. Now look at verse 6. Children's children are a crown to the aged, and parents are the pride of their children. So, children, how is it you think about your... leads you to uh, show contempt for your maker, 
or, or perhaps we should think about it from the perspective of verse 5 one who mocks the poor will not go unpunished notice children's children are a crown to the aged how will you be punished well it may be that you won't get your children's children it may be that you won't see your grandchildren because the Lord will inter- intervene in some way in your life let's just do one more before we, before we stop verse 27 we'll go to the end of the chapter a man of knowledge uses words with restraint and a man of understanding is even tempered so very straightforward proverb just by itself if, if, you, if you are thoughtful and knowledgeable then you'll be careful about the words that you use you won't just mouth off at whatever opportunity you have you'll, you'll, you'll restrain your temper you'll, you'll think about the words that you say well look at the following verse even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue beautiful verse just in its own but think of it in the context of verse 27 that is if you're using words with restraint if you're, if you're being even tempered then if even a fool is thought wise when, when he um, remains silent then think how you will be viewed because you're actually more than a fool at this point you're, you're being even tempered you're using words with restraint so the summary that I'd like to just finish with at this point is that it seems to me that that the Holy Spirit through Solomon and and through others Hezekiah's men and, and so on has deliberately given us a blending of advice and wants us to take each of these proverbs and think about them in the context of the proverbs that surround it and and something that I've started doing in my Bible is on on each of the proverbs as I see a connection with the proverb before or the proverb after I draw a kind of bracket symbol to remind myself that when I'm looking at this proverb make sure I look at the one before or the one after and I certainly don't have bracket symbols between all of them I haven't seen the connections necessarily between all of them But it's a fascinating exercise to to undertake as you go through the book of Proverbs. Just just pick one at random. Read it. Read that proverb just by itself. Get the sense of what that proverb is. Not looking anywhere else. If If you can have the discipline just to look at that proverb. Understand what that proverb is. Sort of follow it to the fullness that you can in your mind. And once you've done that, then look at the one before and see if that provokes any new thoughts about the proverb you're considering and then look at the one after see if that provokes new thoughts about the one that you're considering and and I suspect you'll find greater richness so that's given us a kind of summary of, of the book of Proverbs and what we'll do in the following sessions is start looking at some of these themes um, not to sort of unjumble the book of Proverbs we'll try and look at the Proverbs in the context in which Solomon has put them but nonetheless there are obviously very powerful lessons that we get for everyday life and we'll address some of those in days to come Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu visit.